Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. The parameters of the possible are defined by ideology. And the difficulties of legislation and the hurdles and the hoops you have to jump through on the road to establishing good policy, those are defined by ideology. Ideology permeates the entire political system and in a lot of ways boxes it in. Hello, welcome to The Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, Obviously, one of the things I'm interested on the show is ideology and how it is changing in America right now. And we spend a lot of time talking about Donald Trump, but certainly one of the very, very important changes happening is the eruption of a quite powerful Democratic Socialist bloc within the Democratic Party. Uh, You see it, obviously, in Bernie Sanders' candidacy, but you also see it in the opinion and punditry and reporting worlds. There are new uh, outlets that are dedicated to this, like Jacobin and Current Affairs. Um, You have a lot of writers doing it. And one of the things that I'm really fascinated by within this is what are these cleavages really? Are they are they differences in ideology? Are they differences in political tactics? Um, I often feel like I'm listening or involved in arguments that frame as being, you know, one side supports Medicare for all and the other side doesn't. But actually, they end up being about what one side or the other believes is politically possible. So are we just seeing people argue over what the boundaries of the possible really are? This kind of tracing, what are the actual disagreements, has been something I've wanted to do for a long time. And so I'm very glad Elizabeth Brunig was willing to join me on the podcast today to do it. Liz is a Washington Post columnist. Um, She has a very, very fascinating background. Um, She's a PhD candidate in religion at Brown University. So she also has a sort of religious liberalism to her. And I just think she's a really thoughtful and interesting articulator of what this left is and what it means and where it differs from, say, Obama coalition that came before it. So I was really, really enjoyed this conversation. As always, you can email me. Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. That is Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. Here is Elizabeth Brunig. Elizabeth Brunig, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So I wanted to talk a bit about the differences between the the rising, I guess, democratic socialist left in the Democratic Party and the sort of left that that precedes it. And in particular, the sort of differences between, I guess, like Bernie Sanders liberalism and Obama liberalism. I'm curious how you how you trace those. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that they they come from sort of ideologically related families, right? They both take seriously the sort of core tenets of what you would think of as sort of Western liberalism, you know, equality, freedom, justice. Um, and what the democratic socialist left tends to say is that all of these principles are poorly served, if not totally stymied, by the effects of capitalism. 
and the distributive effects it has on society and politics. And so part of, you know, a big chunk of the democratic socialist approach to sort of achieving these goals that I think, you know, we all kind of share uh, has to do with um, really limiting the effect capitalism has on society and politics uh, by kind of undercutting its power. And so where does that come with force? So is that a a vision for political reform? So you get money out of politics? Is it a vision for Medicare for all in the sort of Bernie Sanders version where you get a lot of the profit incentive out of at least um, health insurance itself? You know, where where are the, the, the key divisions there? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, where the sort of rubber meets the road is in all of the above. It's uh, It becomes uh, sort of limiting and undercutting the power of capital in society. It becomes this kind of organizing principle. So, you know, in terms of contrasting the sort of um, traditional democratic approach, or at least what it's been for the past few decades, uh, and the democratic socialist approach, uh, you know, you're exactly right. When it comes to lobbying uh, donors' money in politics, the democratic socialist left says uh, those things are not only annoying, they actually pose sort of an existential threat to democracy itself. And when it comes to Medicaid for all or single payer universal health care, they say the profit incentive is, you know, turning healthcare into a consumer product, excluding huge numbers of people who then can't participate in political life whatsoever. So again, existential threat to the kind of equal society that we envision. And, you know, the same thing with banks, for instance, finance, Wall Street, uh, the power of these institutions that have become too big to fail uh, actually is not only power over the you know American finance, it's power over American politics in a sense because the onus is then placed on the state to kind of intervene uh, and support these enormous institutions that are you know predatory and exert a huge amount of power. So here's where I often find myself confused about these debates and sometimes about the the, the role I'm even playing in them or, or being or being understood to play, which is, Sometimes it's unclear to me whether people are arguing about a difference of ideology or a difference of political economy or practical political theory. So, like, I think Medicare for All is a pretty good example where I kind of think of everybody inside that debate, myself or Barack Obama or um, you or Bernie Sanders, um, you know, all the way to people significantly to the right as being tending to want to move the country's healthcare system quite far towards the left. I mean, Obama said he would prefer a single payer if he were starting over, but he always has that proviso, right, if he were starting over. And so his view is that given the powers in society, given the existence of a U.S. Senate and a House and a filibuster and all the rest of it, that in order to give more people health insurance, he's got to operate within the boundaries of the system. And if he doesn't, he's going to suffer one of these like Clinton care, like catastrophic backlashes and setbacks and nobody will be helped at all. And maybe it'll end up with Republicans taking back the House and cutting Medicaid. And there's a sort of answer to this on, on on the left that is sometimes in terms of political theory and sometimes it seems in terms of like ideological frustration. But I always wonder if we're sort of arguing the right things or we've sort of ended up in sometimes in an argument that is often seems to be about ideology, but is actually about, you know, different people's perceptions of what is politically possible and how much that should narrow the the boundaries of what they focus on. Yeah. And I mean, I think for the democratic socialist left, the parameters of the possible uh, is an ideological question. So I think the democratic socialist left 
takes those two separate notions, you know, that you have your ideology, the things that you want, the things that Obama, you know, for instance, would have done if he could start from scratch. And then you have the sort of Overton window and the limitations of legislation and the uh, hurdles and hoops you have to jump through in Congress. And the two things are often, I think, conceived of as, you know, separate entities. And I think that the democratic socialist left says, no, the parameters of the possible are defined by ideology. And the difficulties of legislation and the hurdles and the hoops you have to jump through on the road to establishing good policy, those are defined by ideology. Ideology permeates the entire political system and in a lot of ways boxes it in. And so the democratic socialist left's project is not just pushing for these policies, but pushing for them in such a way as to expand the parameters of the possible by changing the sort of ideological um, availabilities on the table. And so I think that's why, you know, you sort of run into, it can feel like parallel arguments, but that's why you run into um, these kind of loggerheads arguments, I think, between sort of traditional Democrats and then the dim social left. But so one of the things that seems to me to assume, because uh, obviously it's true on some level, right? Uh, everything, everything is kind of structured by what ideologies we conceive of to be rational and reasonable. But ideology to me, the, the way I have come to understand it, I don't want to call it a fixed thing, but I want to call it a sticky thing. People are hard to move. They're very, very, very difficult to persuade. They, um, you know, most people don't pay that much in, much attention to politics. They, they, they can be like backfooted very quickly if you change a poll question or whatever or, or, or whatever it might be. I mean, we've seen this in I'll use Medicare for all as, as the example. Here. We've seen this in Medicare for all polling where it can very quickly go from like plus 30 to minus 30, depending on, you know, do you say it raises taxes or not? And the, the thing I always wonder with the, the Democratic Socialist left is if it got power and so now it isn't in a kind of big picture ideological question, but it has to get the votes now, would it be able or willing or want to make those compromises or would those compromises be anathema to, to what it is and what its project is trying to do? I mean, if you if you take it as at least plausible that the ideology and the institutions, which I would include here um, as, a, as a big part of what puts boundaries on the debate, are difficult to change in the short term, you know, and so you end up with these like often quite unpleasant choices and compromises, like do you do this without a public option or um, whatever it might be? Would that be too much of a violation to to do, or is that just sort of a thing that is being understood to come later? Right. I mean, I think the dim social left in America, um, you know, hasn't uh, had quite a bit of power. Um, you know, it has a presence inside the Democratic Party, um, but it wasn't able to push, you know, its candidate past the primary um, in 2016. So um, you're sort of dealing with a political coalition in many ways that's new um, in America as to where, you know, democratic socialism in other countries, comparably developed European countries, have strong party presences and long histories of governing. I think that you can look at, you know, the democratic socialist parties in other countries and see that when they do govern, uh, they are willing to make um, certain compromises at times that might be different compromises and they might resist them more strenuously and they might insist on um, having the compromise placed in a different area uh, than you know, sort of traditional American Democrats. But um, you can see at least proof of concept that democratic socialist parties can govern and can succeed. And so I think that for the American democratic socialist left, the hope is, you know, once you get into power uh, to view the struggle 
for democratic socialist policies as part of the political project because it does have the capacity to sort of shift the Overton window and it can um, change uh, some minds, right? I mean, you're not going to have 100% conversion instantly, but obviously you can look at the field of 2020 candidates right now for the Democratic nomination and see that the dim social left has managed to at least win a lot of left pledges out of candidates who formerly uh, were not or did not identify as extraordinarily progressive. And then I think that after, you know, governing and 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 viewing that shift as part of the project itself, you you would see, uh, I think, you know, probably some compromising going on. But I, I think that for the Democratic Socialist left, fighting that fight in Congress, in public, uh, in the political um, realm, and not just in the realm of, you know, media or discourse is part of the project itself. And, and I would say Bernie Sanders, I think his career is an example of this too. I mean, he's both a very... Overton windows shifting politician and somebody who's been a very pragmatic legislator and sort of member of the, I mean, liberal side, but nevertheless of the of the Democratic coalition when it's come down to it on on key votes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you've seen Bernie Sanders, you know, his career in a lot of ways is indicative, I think, of what is so inspiring to the Democratic Socialist left. You refer to ideology being sticky. I think there's evidence of that. And then you also point out that it can be very volatile. Um, and and I think that the dim social left is a product of that, that, you know, you just have pressure points that occur in history that can produce a lot of ideological change very quickly. And also that the dim social left hopes for that, right, that once you have certain historical circumstances that allow you to point out the shortcomings of our politics, uh, you can actually have quite a bit of change relatively quickly. And it's happened before in American history, certainly in European history. And and Bernie's, you know, sudden ascendancy sort of late in his career, I think, is pretty good evidence of that. You know, I, I think this is such an interesting topic, and it, it's one that I have been obsessing over a little bit lately. Um, this idea of volatile ideologies and, and and how much things change and when you even know if they have changed. So something I always think about in this debate, uh, I think it is fair to say that um, to the Democratic Socialist left, I sort of exist on the like the neoliberal liberal Wing, you know, like the, the thing it is in some ways trying to, to overcome. Um, and what's always interesting to me about that, which I'm not even saying is wrong, is that um, prior to that, when I came into politics and I was yo- uh, a younger man, uh, I was considered the kind of like angry left to the DLC Democratic Party you know, wing of the wing of the coalition where, you know, the Washington Monthly had me interview Charlie Peters as a like I was a critic of neoliberalism and he was a, a founder of it and, and we were supposed to reach an understanding. And, you know, something I always thought about when I would talk to some of the people from the the, the DLC wing of the party was that they felt stuck to me. They felt stuck to me in a vision of what the public believed that I didn't think was true. Um, you know, I thought the public had moved more than they did and was was less afraid of socialism because it wasn't the Cold War anymore and, you know, um, whatever it might have been. And then, you know, now I wonder when I have some of these discussions, you know, am I in that position where uh the public has moved quite a bit from the period of time in which I was forming my understanding of its innate balance between, you know, liberalism and conservatism, or has it not moved that much and the public is thermostatic and when people get back in power, it's going to be very disappointing. And I'm sort of, you know, just have had that experience of watching things I believed in get crushed by the fact that people get very um, antsy when the government says they're going to change a bunch of things. And I, I honestly like this is something I'm struggling with. Like I actually don't know. I mean, ideology can be volatile, it seems to me, but it also 
it seems much more volatile for the people who are not in power than the people who are. Things swing a lot in opposition and then they come back in and the political system and just like the degree to which people don't trust anybody in it seems to hold things pretty um, in, in a pretty narrow band. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you do see that the fact that America has the ideological makeup that it has um, has sort of crystallized politics in a certain way. Um, and I think that the dim social left emphasizes that, right, that um, the battle between sort of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and one style of sort of hi- uh, hyper-capitalist politics uh, combined with culture war and the other being, you know, less hyper-capitalist combined with um, the opposition to the sort of culture war issues has sort of gotten as far as it can go. And now we're just in a weird, ever-churning stalemate. Um, and so I think what the dim social left hopes for is to offer an alternative that is different enough uh, to maybe break through uh, some of that uh, some of that stillness and stagnation that's been going on in American politics for a while now. So to talk a little bit about that alternative and parts of it that are maybe more outside the, the policy arena, something that I think I've moved quite a bit to the left on in the past couple years and have also become more sensitized to is this idea of neoliberalism and sort of market ideology as having um, really uh, escaped whatever boundaries were once placed on it. And that now huge amounts of our life are commercialized and commodified. And, um, and, and just more than that, we seem to have entered into something where our assumption that any choice consumers make is like the only it needs to be respected and everything should be built around consumer choice seems to have infected a lot of places that maybe it shouldn't have. I think we see this with some of the algorithmic platforms. and I think we see it with um, some things in education. We just don't seem to have a lot of uh, ideas around spaces that maybe just shouldn't work under a capitalist framework, even when they're not fundamentally a market or a place where there's an exchange of any kind going on at all. Um I don't really know how you change that through politics, but it seems to me to be a pretty it seems to me to be a pretty important philosophical critique of of the era when I sort of at other times would have associated with religion. But as religion is weakened as as that critic um, seems to be coming uh, from this sort of anti-capitalist left. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the the, the way that the anti-capitalist left construes that is that uh, liberalism sort of has a tendency to, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning, advance these core principles, one of them being freedom. Uh, and then that transcends or, or transforms to freedom of choice, right? When you look at it, how actually freedom plays out in your daily life, the way that you're usually going to experience actually existing freedom is in the multiplicity of choices you have and how to live your life. What capitalism does by sort of parasitically attaching itself uh, to liberalism is saying, yes, and this is the system which provides you with a multiplicity of choices. There's no actually existing freedom without this capitalist system. Uh, and therefore, everything uh, becomes marketized, right? Because the only way you get a multiplicity of choices through capitalism is through market. And so it, you get locked in this kind of strange arrangement where you see the only possibility of freedom as being uh, a sort of market array of options. Uh, and and because liberalism tends to, you know, expand, it starts out as pertaining only to, uh, you know, sort of limited sphere of political life, uh, but it expands to other regions of life. So, too, does this kind of marketizing influence expand. Uh, 
And the religious influence would be, or the religious critique has been to say, that's not freedom. A multiplicity of market choices isn't freedom. It's something else. I mean, you could you could say it's license, you know, but it doesn't necessarily represent a real freedom because it doesn't actually free you to live the kind of life you want to live. And then the anti-capitalist critique takes elements of that critique and says, right, it's not freedom because the choices aren't real, right? Because so many people are vastly limited in the decisions they can actually make by the way that capitalism functions to limit their income, wealth, uh, where they can live, how they can live their lives. Um, their freedom is illusory. And so I do think you see shades of the kind of typical religious critique of of the sort of liberal capitalist or, you know, you can call it neoliberal um, influence. And then you also see, I think, a, a much stronger emergence at this particular point in time of the, of the standard sort of secular uh, critique. I wonder when uh, I think it's a really interesting way of framing that. And I always wonder about what can come after it. I mean, I, I had Patrick Deneen on this podcast who wrote this book, Why Liberalism Failed, which is a version of trying to synthesize these critiques, um, you know, that the, the sort of religious critique that uh, this is not true freedom um, and the, the anti-capitalist critique that uh, that is not true freedom either. But when I talk to him about sort of what comes after, I think it's very hazy. And obviously not everything can be a plan. Um, and pretty when you're talking about philosophical underpinnings of society, sometimes you're just arguing back and forth. But there's a way in which it doesn't seem to me that we even have a language for the parts of this that exist outside of policy, that there's just huge swaths of life that seem to me to be cultural. And one thing that I think um, that Dem socialist left and the traditional like liberal left share or just traditional liberal share is a real focus on what you can fix through policy and not a really clear idea of how to change or influence culture. In some ways, I think the the players who are the best at influencing culture are this is not a great term and I don't really love it, but like the identity politics left, which I think has done a very good job working through sort of cultural organs to to change perceptions of representation and who fits where and 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 what should look like what. But it's not something that I think has spread in any real way to some of these other spaces. I think I can see quite a bit of sort of left liberal influence on culture through, you know, sort of film and um, television and music, which tend to be dominated by people who are somewhere on the liberal to left spectrum, typically. But uh, I, I do think that the left, at least the you know the contemporary American left, certainly doesn't have the focus on culture that the left of yesteryear had. You know, the sort of Frankfurt School really deep dive focus on culture and how it affects politics and shapes them um, isn't a, as I think focused of an area for the American left right now, but it does exist and, and it is there. Um, I think that it's hard to envision like a programmatic, um, you know, cultural uh, approach. Uh, and and I, I'm not sure the left has ever had something like that. So to, to bring us back and in, in some ways violating exactly what I just said, but going back to some of the policy questions, there's one other thing I want to ask you about that, which is one of the big differences that I see between different parts of the left right now is how much they believe in and fear backlash to backlash to overreach, but just backlash in general. Um, I think of actually a lot of the debate in Medicare for all in these terms, but but there are a bunch of other topics here, too, where I think there are a lot of folks who think, you know, if you 
go this route, if you say decide you want to abolish private insurance and now you're telling all these people who like their insurance and don't really like the government that this is going to be gone, that far from like getting half a loaf or getting any of a loaf, you're going to get annihilated and you're going to have this kind of backlash that rips through the party. You can go too far and there can be a reaction. And I don't find that that is something that the Dem social stuff seems to really worry about. And it does seem to me to be like a like a question one can have different views on. But I'm curious how you think about it. I'm, I'm curious how you think about that question of um, risk aversion in in what people propose and in, and in what people support. Yeah, I think the risk for backlash, or I feel like anyway, personally, the, the point at which I become really frightened about backlash is the point at which I feel um, that people have been misled. Um, and so I, I'm concerned about um, strands of thinking on the left that appear to misrepresent what's going to happen under uh, particular left policies. So taking Medicaid for all as an example, you know, there there's a strain of left thinking that's kind of ascendant right now that says you don't actually need to raise taxes uh, in order to um, have these sort of big spending government programs because we're a sovereign nation, we can just print money and then the issue is controlling inflation, but that's not taxes. Uh, and, you know, my my feeling, my suspicion is that uh, actually, even if we did go about it that way, um, people would still experience uh, a dramatic reduction in their purchasing power uh, due to the due to the policies we'd be using in order to fund these programs. Uh, and so, in other words, just like a tax, uh, that's the point at which I'd be really, really worried about backlash uh, is in the in the rhetorical process of making that argument when people sort of cotton on to what's going on. When they feel like they've been lied to, that you're trying to dupe them, that's where I really worry about backlash. I think that um, causes people to feel extremely defensive, very angry, uh, and to say, well, the old way is not great, but at least they're not lying to me. And so I think it's really critical for the Dem Social Left to be very clear about uh, things like, yeah, the, the middle uh, class tax levels are going to have to go up in order to fund something like Medicaid for all. And they're going to have to go up across the board. And they're going to go up on billionaires, but not just billionaires, not just millionaires. I think that it's it's critical to be straightforward about stuff like that to inf- to avoid exactly what you're saying, extraordinary backlash. One of the things I think that is really interesting about the Medicare for all debate itself is that it's such a powerful slogan in part because it has a slightly innate conservatism. People know Medicare for all. It is existent now um, or they think they do anyway. Medicare is a program out there now. People love that program. They trust it. They're not afraid of it. So you're sort of relying on a status quo bias, right? Rather than saying like the new program, it's like, no, 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 this thing you already know and like, it's going to work great because it already works. You don't have to trust us to do something new. And I look at some of these plans and, you know, they say they like Sunset Medicare Advantage, which is like the private insurance inside Medicare for all the 34 percent of people in that program are on. And it's like I think if you sold people Medicare for all and then told them you're taking away what they think of as their Medicare, it would get really dangerous. And on some level, I'm very sympathetic to it because I, I do think that if you want to hold down costs in the system long term, you don't want to give um, medical providers that many options to simply reject Medicare insurance and go to higher paying private providers. So I actually very much get the policy argument for that um, and, and in some ways probably lean towards it myself. I think one of the things that kind of scares me about where that conversation is going, because I'm like pretty enthused to see the possibility of like a giant Medicare expansion on the table, is that um, I think that people maybe misread why that slogan pulls so well. And they've kind of combined something that sounds to people very safe with something that is actually much more ambitious and different. And that when those two things begin to converge, you could get into exactly the kind of situation you're talking about where people say, wait, I thought 
you said Medicare for all, but you're taking away the stuff I already have. Um, that that's not that's not what I signed up for at all. Right, and so I mean, I think it's critical um, to be you know, and and some of these programs like you're, they get very arcane or complicated as you go into them. Um, I think you know one of the things that I've always tried to focus on is saying you know single payer universal health care. Um, and, you know, that gets marketed under M4A um, and there is a specific bill attached to M4A and I think they're good advancements. But I do think it's it's very important to be honest about the sort of changes that we're looking at. They're not extremely drastic, I don't think. They certainly, the programs that um, are being proposed here bear vast similarities to programs that people already know and approve of, especially in their funding and their payment structure where it comes to paying providers. Um, so, I mean, I do think there are lots of similarities and it's important to foreground those. Um, but you can't hide the fact that, right, you're looking at a program that's going to, you know, essentially transform the American healthcare system. And the left argument should be, and that's a really good thing. Yeah, I actually really thought the way Senator Harris um, handled that question was really good. Uh, like, if that's the view, when she just, when she was asked by Jake Tapper, like, are you going to abolish private health insurance? She said, yes, like, <laughs> private health insurance is bad. We don't want it anymore. It, it it felt to me like not hiding the ball there was really, really important. It actually was, I thought, one of the more um, kind of impressive interviews I've seen her give. And, and and that answer, which I think got like some people saw as a political uh, as a political gaffe of, of some kind, struck me as like proving her to be much quicker on her feet and more aggressive on this than than I think she had been given credit for before. Right. I mean, I think that that is a very sort of bold and very honest way to answer that question, which is the private insurance industry, which I think is what she was referring to, is sort of a nuisance. It's an extractive layer that sits on top of providers um, and and pulls money out of the system. Uh, and it's highly complicated. Uh, it obviously has uh, plenty of failures, gaps and traps that people fall into. Uh, and, and it's an industry that basically doesn't need to exist, right? There's no value add. Uh, it's something that we could do in a much more straightforward, uh, simple, streamlined way without adding a huge level of extraction. And and so, yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I thought that was, you know, one of the great uh, moments so far in a, in, a, in, a, in a campaign that hasn't been going <laughs> too terribly <laughs> long. Um, but, you know, it would be on a highlights reel. And then, and I think that's what, you know, and I think a lot of Dem social people really like that answer. And then, you know, there was some controversy because her team sort of clarified, well, that doesn't mean that her top priority is abolishing the insurance industry. Um, but, but I do think that the disappointment that you saw out of the left when her team clarified that came from the fact that that's, you know, precisely the kind of thing the left knows it should be saying and wants to hear. So let me ask you about the media side of this, because there's one dimension of kind of political organizing as it's moved from, you know, like moderate Dem to liberal Dem to, to Dem socialist. Um, but there's another, I think, kind of interesting set of like media fights happening. And and I'll frame this a little bit in in, in the way um, I've experienced it. So like I came in and, and you're at The Washington Post now and I was there uh, before. And sort of part of the project I always felt myself as part of was there was a real like politics coverage was really horse racy and it was really, really, really about who was up and who was down and this kind of implied American political consumer and what they would think of it. But that consumer is really the pundit themselves. And I was sort of part of a group of people who said, like, let's actually talk about policy. Right. This whole thing is important because of policy. Like, let's talk about the policy. Let's talk about the institutions that have to pass it. Like, let's refocus like the political lens, like the eye of Sauron on what this is all supposed to be about and let the politics flow out of that as opposed to as opposed to prejudging them in that in, in quite that way like let's like let's foreground policy and 
One of the things I really actually I think is valuable about the sort of like I would call like the media left is it feels to me that the alteration that, say, a Jacobin is putting onto that um, or, or in some cases someone like you is saying, no, it needs to be about power. That the pot like, OK, like absorb the policy debate, but then you actually like what you really need to foreground is a discussion about power. And if you're not talking about power, you're completely missing the point because policy flows out of power and, you know, and, and politics and flows out of policy. Um, I'm curious if that sounds like a if that framework rings true to you. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And and I do think that the the sort of wonk revolution um, that you were a part of was good and important. And I, I think that, um, you know, actually a lot of my good friends at The Washington Post uh, were wonk blog people. Um, Max Aaron Freund, for example, um, super great guy and in that wonk tradition. And, and Jeff Stein, I think, has has uh, has really kind of worked in that vein as well. And, of course, my husband, um, Matt Brunig, he's, you know, sort of taken up, I think, uh, a, a position as sort of a left wonk, you know, who focuses closely on these real important questions of, of policy details and how they work. But then I, I also think that the sort of response to that, or you can look at it as, you know, part of this dialectic is to, like you say, focus on power um, and focus on systems and focus on institutions um, that, you know, sort of uh, circle around and encompass and frame and enable these policies to work sometimes and prevent them from working at other times. Because, you know, those questions are just as important for understanding whether or not we're going to be able to get where we want to go as a society. Yeah, I mean, I think that idea of the institutions is important. I mean, in my own work, what it feels to me has happened when I like look back at it is that I went from writing a lot about policy to writing a lot about political institutions. Um, because when I would see where the policy got trimmed down or stopped in a way that I thought was changeable, I would end up be finding myself like right at the feet of the filibuster or at Senate apportionment or, you know, whatever it might be. And then I think that it, to me, the one of the interesting things about the, the Dem Socialist Left is it, it looks at that, I think, and, and takes um, a less institutional view and a more, you know, kind of capitalist view that, that what's really constraining the system is money. And I'm sometimes a little less uh, convinced of that than other people, though it's obviously true to to a substantial extent. But either way, it 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 seems important, and it seems like to me in in kind of both directions as examples of we've like individualized political coverage too much. It's very much about politicians and their strategies. When politicians and their strategies tend to be emanations of like the institutions they're working through and the broader culture they're working within. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that there's a there's something very human about focusing on individual politicians, their personal dramas and their strategies, right? And and those stories are really easy to follow because we have a lot of experience following sort of human narratives with human drama. That's our everyday life. Um, and it's also a lot more like cool TV shows that we watch. Institutions are, you know, bigger, they're more anonymous, they're more multifarious, they're harder to understand. Uh, but I do think that's extremely important. And then I think the other piece that's very important is... Uh, Focusing on ideology, right? The, and this is something that I'm really big on. Institutions are important. The limitations of capital are extremely important. Uh, and then also people just have ideas that mean a lot to them. Uh, and the, the depth and the commitment of the human heart is almost immeasurable. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that it's, it's a really fascinating uh, point that, especially since 2016, has become a bigger and bigger focus in the media. And I'm really happy to see that. I find myself so I'm, I think a lot about ideology and I'm writing a book sort of about identity and ideology and politics and, and and all these things. And I've come to find myself in a weirder place than I started on on both ideology and persuasion, where 
it seems to me that people have a lot less ideology than I initially thought, that ideology seems to be extremely strong among the people who drive politics. And because we tend to know a lot of other people like us, we way overstate its kind of coherence in the in the mass public that most people, they're not ideological thinkers. They kind of have intuitions on a lot of different subjects. But I think the thing that for me has been actually the hardest, like if you ask me, what have I changed my mind on in my career um, that is in some ways caused me the most pain, it's that so much of my work was based on this idea that persuasion is really possible in some kind of linear way. Like you make a better argument and then like people change their minds and, and, and we're off to the races. And it does not really seem to me anymore that persuasion is in most cases possible, that, um, you know, people do have ideas and their commitment, as you say, is almost immeasurable to them. But that commitment um, is so immeasurable to them and is sometimes uh, a little bit oddly based or it's based on who they are or what they've seen before. That the idea that we're we're kind of in some kind of argument isn't isn't true. In some ways, it it brings me more back to focusing on political power because power can change a lot. Um, and I, it seems to me to change a lot faster than ideology does, at least in the mass public. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's certainly right. I think that when you're focusing on you know accomplishing political goals through persuasion, you're going to need to look at power, you're going to need to look at capital, and you're going to need to look at institutions. I think that's all exactly right. Um, in the world of you know the sort of media side of things, not strictly the political, where you're interacting with people on a one-on-one -on -one level, in, and you're trying to advance the most straightforward, linear, and bulletproof arguments you can, you often realize you don't actually run into a lot of success. <laughs> and uh, and I think that when you're in a one-on-one -on -one argument with someone, you're not in an argument. You're in a relationship. And whether or not you can persuade them or cause them to see things in a different way or from your point of view has much more to do with those emotions that emanate from relationships, feelings of trust and compassion and respect and hope um, than with the sort of power and strength of a really buzzsaw argument. Yeah, I, I think that's totally right. And it's funny, I, I would take that in two directions. So one is that I'm sure you're probably familiar with this story, given given your interest. But there, I think it was a it was a book actually by a Washington Post reporter. But I heard about it on Krista Tippett's show. This example of this white supremacist. He was like the son of like I think the guy who started Stormfront or something. And he was in college, and just slowly over the course of years of being invited to like Shabbat dinners at this you know this Jewish person's house, and you know developing friendships was taken out of white supremacy. And it's a really I think remarkable story. And he and 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 the people who were involved in it have told it a number of times. And I think it really speaks to what you're saying, which is this is about relationships. Like he he's very clear. Like it wasn't an I was good at arguing. What I couldn't end up denying was the degree to which the relationships undercut my arguments. But what it also said to me when I looked at like the time and effort and emotional energy that went into that process was it's really hard. <laughs> Changing anybody's mind is really hard. And I always think about that in terms of families. I mean, it's such a trope, you know, arguing with your uncle at Thanksgiving. Um, but what I always think about in those arguments is that in families, it's like you couldn't, you have these deep relationships, real trust. Like I'm a professional political person and I can't convince my family members of anything really. Uh, and, you know, and they trust me and they know that I do this full time for a living. And it always makes me much more respectful of like other people's intellectual autonomy. Like they can decide to listen to you, but you can't make them. Yeah. I mean, I'm so my family is conservative. I grew up in Texas um, and they have, you know, sort of a lot of suspicions about the media. Right. In the way that I think a big portion of the conservative movement does right now. And when I, you know, sort of propose back to them, like, well, I'm the media. They say, well, you're different. 
<laughs> instead of saying <laughs> you're one you know, of the good ones, right? Right, exactly. Instead of saying, "Well, you're representative of the media and you're good, therefore uh, the media might have you know more of an upside than I consider," they just say, "Well, you're different than the people that I'm talking about." And and so again, you know, when you're in arguments, um, it's it's very very relational. And and I think that another thing about arguments when it comes to these really really important value issues that are at the heart of our debates about, you know, capitalism, for example, because capitalism carries the rhetoric and the language of freedom and justice and fairness. These are core values that people take very seriously. And when you argue against capitalism, you will at first be heard to be arguing against those things. And so I've always taken it very seriously to be very mindful of the relationships that form the context in which I'm making those arguments. Have you been able to convert your family to dem socialism? <laughs> so they 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 do like universal health care. <laughs> that that I think is a that is an easy sell in general. People yeah. get scared maybe in the details, but I think people believe they have an intuitive belief that that should be there. So lots lots of people have been through um, you know dramatic health situations where the the expenses were just you know out of control for them, especially sort of ordinary families. Um, so. I had a baby. I have epilepsy. I was diagnosed with epilepsy when I was a teenager. It was really shocking and it was really scary. And there are a lot of tests you have to go through. And then, um, you know, my mom had uh, sort of very early stage breast cancer and then my grandmother died of cancer. Um, and, you know, once you see those things and you go through them, you say, yeah, well, my family struggled to afford that. So probably everyone else is too. And I think another thing that makes healthcare a particularly easy sell compared to something like SNAP, you know, or, you know, TANF or other forms of welfare for poor families is that everyone knows when you get sick, it's not your fault because they've been sick. And so it's harder to assign moral failure to a person who gets really catastrophically ill and can't afford their medical bills. But as to, you know, as to where people are very eager to assign sort of moral failings to families that need help from the state. I used to joke, there was this old line that a neoconservative was a liberal who got mugged. And I used to joke that a socialist was a, um, a conservative who got sick. It's not actually true when you look at the data, but I, like the number of articles I read over the years of, you know, a Republican who is vacationing in France and his daughter got sick. And it's like, actually, the French healthcare system is not that bad. Um, was always really striking to me. Like that's one of those few experiences that that when it happens, I think cuts through. And this is one of the fascinating parts about Donald Trump to me, who clearly, I've always thought of Donald Trump as actually very much like just an average voter. Um, he had a lot of political intuitions, but they like it often wasn't worked out that much into a co- here in ideology. But he always just believed people should have health care. Like he thought the Canadian system was fine. And then later he said he was going to be a different kind of Republican. And it turns out he's lazy and like he got into office and just let Paul Ryan write all the bills. But, yeah. you know, it seems to me if he had his wand, like his view was that there should be no immigrants, but there should be health care. Yeah. And I think he also wants to be loved, you know. And, and so when you see a need like, uh, you know, well, people need health care, you know, universal systems, they work. I think Trump would have loved to have been a president who could do something like that, stamp his name on it. And, you know, then people would have to say, say what you will about Trump, but he did do X, Y, Z. And I think that really appeals to him. Um, but like you said, once you actually get into office and you're part of this Republican institution that has a, a very, very, very powerful institutional bias towards capital and away from sort of programs like that, uh, it's just tough. And, and so he ended up focusing on other things. People always say that about Trump, that he wants to be loved. And I actually don't believe it. I think Trump wants to be respected and he wants to be seen as strong. 
And so he's got these very, very strong um, reactions to something where it seems like he might be backing down. But I always feel like if the guy wanted to be loved, he would just act differently in life. Like if he wants to be loved and he's acting this way and making none of the obvious changes, like either there's something extremely broken in his cause and effect calculus or or the model seems to me to be wrong. Well, I think maybe he's selected, you know, he's said to himself, at least this is my analysis and I am not a psychologist. Um, so this is completely. We can play sh- one on the podcast. Yeah, this is just shooting right from the hip here. But <laughs> you know, I think what what appears to have happened with Trump is he came to office. There was immediate, intense fury and anger and fear uh, and disgust from the left, and he felt like, okay, so they're never going to give me a chance. So instead, I am going to, you know, essentially aggravate and antagonize them to the greatest degree possible because that does gin up quite a bit of support and protectiveness and affection from the right. Um, And so he just has, you know, a sort of base where he says, if I'm going to get any approval at all, that's where it's going to come from. And so he focuses, it seems, quite a bit of his rhetorical energy on just making sure that that particular base remains highly approving, affectionate and loyal to him uh, because he, he doesn't have any expectation of liberals ever, ever giving him a shot. I want to ask you about another billionaire politician who I think really would like to be loved, which is Howard Schultz. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You wrote, a, I thought, a pretty interesting piece the other day. And Schultz is out there saying that he is the paragon of, I think, what's long been a fetishized point on the ideological spectrum in, in American life, this idea that you can be that you're socially liberal and fiscally conservative. And you wrote that you can be socially indifferent and fiscally conservative, but not liberal in any committed, actionable sense. Can, can you talk a bit about what you're saying there? Yeah. So my viewpoint would be, you know, when you talk about social liberalism, um, you are usually, you know, so to just kind of break it down, uh, you're talking about freedoms in society, right? So liberalism, liberty, freedom is another way of putting that that kind of works better in contemporary English. Um, but you're looking for freedoms that operate in society. And so people's freedom essentially to interact as social creatures in the way that they want to. And if you are fiscally conservative, if your point of view is that the state should essentially um, contract and not interfere in any way, positive or negative, with the sort of functioning of society, that is, you know, Schultz has talked about cutting entitlements and so forth, um, then it's not really possible for you to say that you're making a positive contribution to freedoms that people experience in society. So the examples I give in the piece are, if you look at like the most marginalized groups, um, black people, Hispanic people, LGBT people, they all experience uh, a reduction in their ability to access health care, food security, these very basic things you need in order to engage in society, to get up every day, carry on relationships, have um, work opportunities to be creative and so forth. Uh, Not having food, not being able to eat, being hungry, being very sick, those things materially limit your freedom in society. So I think social liberals who are really actually committed to sort of supporting people's freedoms in society will say, yeah, the state has a positive obligation there to make sure that people have, you know, an existence minimum, a floor, uh, basic needs met so that they're free to carry on their work pursuits, education pursuits, relationship pursuits, and so forth. 
And Schultz seems to be someone who says, I don't want to interfere with anyone's, you know, sort of social activities, but neither do I have a positive obligation to support their freedom in that capacity. And and that seems to me to be a pretty deep thing. I'm always fascinated by this idea of equality of opportunity as being this very soft alternative to equality of outcome. Um, I hear people say all the time on the right included, you know, I'm not for equality of outcome, but I'm for equality of opportunity. I'm sure it's, um, you know, something that, that Schultz would believe in too. But it does seem to me that people who say that are not recognizing how difficult it would actually be to achieve equality of opportunity. I mean, equality of opportunity in some ways actually seems to me a lot more difficult than equality of outcome. Equality of outcome, at least you can just like, you know, redistribute around and, and, and figure it out. Equality of opportunity, and you're talking about parents, and I mean, you can go down the line. It gets very, very difficult. And it just seems to me that the way people get around this is it's all sort of freedom from, um, but yeah. not the not the freedom to. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think that, um, you know, if you're someone, you know, maybe like Howard Schultz, who's had the experience he's had of, you know, he calls himself a self-made man and, um, you know, he sort of worked his way up, uh, in, in, you know, from uh, very little to quite a bit, it, it possibly looks to you that uh, it probably looks more to you like opportunity is widely available, easy to take advantage of and so forth. But then there are other people, you know, if you had changed a few elements in his story. What if he had been very sick when it was, you know, uh, around time to be in his peak earning years, to be innovating and, and founding uh, or, or contributing to the foundation of companies? You know, what if someone in his family had been extremely sick and needed his support or and so on and so forth, right? Those kinds of things can make a huge difference and, you know, essentially eliminate equality of opportunity materially on the ground, even if the state isn't banning it. Right. It's not the state interfering to say uh, we're foreclosing this possibility. It's just the state creating policies that allow those possibilities to be foreclosed for some and not others. And, and you know, I guess I don't typically find myself uh, making this my my main project. But to speak for Howard Schultz, <laughs> I, I think he would say that, you know, he would want people to have health care and he offered health care at Starbucks and he wants to fix the Affordable Care Act. But there's a, a generalized idea there, I mean, lurking within his candidacy, which doesn't yet have a lot of policy meat on its bones, but we'll see. There's a generalized idea that we shouldn't move too fast. And I, I do think that sort of putting to the side or sort of earlier discussion about what is politically possible, if your personal experience with society has been that um, it's really movable, right? If like the, the you know, the roll of the dice and also your own effort and, and particular set of aptitudes came up the right way um, and it all like worked out unbelievably well, um, I think it can make the whole thing look fairer than it probably is. But I also think that some of the ways in which it's unfair are really hard, are harder than people even give credit for to know what to do about. I mean, the place that really puts me into almost like a socialist space is when you begin thinking about things like, yeah, you know, what if you're born with dyslexia, severe dyslexia? Or what if you were, you know, um, you know, three months premature and it had consistent um, efforts, uh, effects on your cognitive function um, or your executive function? And it's like you like we don't have good ways to um, equalize all that. But it feels very, very, very hard to get to like anywhere that is um, even approaching equality of opportunity. Right. And and so when you start looking at sort of setbacks like those that um, can impact how people, you know, access the world for the remainder of their lives, I think, you know, you sort of run into I think it becomes clear that you need more than one step. 
So you definitely need to, you know, where it comes to disability especially, make the world completely accessible um, and, and create every possible support for people who are disabled um, to access education, employment, um, to live in society, to be independent, and so on. And, you know, we actually have quite a few laws that are already dedicated to that purpose in the ADA. Um, and then, you know, a universal single-payer system would fill in a lot of big gaps we have left. Um, but then, it, you know, it becomes clear, like you're saying, that's not enough, you know, because you still have people who are significantly impacted uh, by what they have to deal with every day. And so... I think that's when it becomes obvious that you need um, some kind of distributional change uh, in order to approach something like uh, equality and, and a quality of life and a real material freedom for people who struggle with those kinds of challenges. One thing that that kind of real distributional change um, creates as a question is, and I think it's one of the fundamental questions that the left is continuously arguing over, is why doesn't it often seem to have more support under the people who appear it appears would benefit from it most immediately and you get answers like you know it's not enough or it's compromised or you get answers like it's actually race and it's about people not wanting other people to get things but you know there's this kind of continuous view in politics that um you know particularly on the right that you know people who make say less than the median income are just going to vote themselves all the free stuff and there's this continuous way in which that doesn't actually happen and you know politics and redistribution are, are quite constrained and I'm curious, you know, which of the different um, explanations for that you you tend to subscribe to? I think it's totally multifarious. I think that there are several reasons. Damn um, it! <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. It's not. It's no fun. I hate nuanced answers. <laughs> there's no glory. There's no grand unified reason. I don't think that um, people, you know, quote unquote, vote against their interests. Um, I think that with each individual voting issue, whether it be trade or environmental regulations, or welfare, uh, you see people who do stand to benefit from those kinds of policy changes voting against them. And with different groups who vote against them, I presume there are different reasons. A racial animus, you know, I think we pretty well know, is a motivating factor for opposition to welfare, um, even though it would benefit a lot of people who vote against it. Um, there is something called last place aversion, a psychological phenomenon where people uh, who are sort of uh, have lower status but not the lowest possible status are wary of elevating the status of people with the lowest possible status because they don't want to be in the last place. So they think, I may not be very well off, but I've earned where I am. I belong here and I have a right to it. And if we have welfare or something like that, then suddenly I'm going to be on the bottom rung because it's going to bring the very bottom rung up to where I am. And that's not fair. So I think you see a lot of uh, that kind of thinking. Um, and then there are sort of regional politics in different places that um, also can motivate animus to programs that would be helpful to people um, who wind up opposed to them. I think that the important thing in advocating for those programs is not to be patronizing or make presumptions about why people are voting against them, sort of listen to the populations that are hostile to them. And, you know, again, you can't lie to them. Right. And you shouldn't, um, you know, in terms of persuasion, you're just going to have to say, you know, approach it, like I said, in a sort of relational capacity. Say, I understand where you are. Right. And that makes sense. And my hope for this policy is this. And do you so there's also been a strain of the left that has sort of made the argument, I think, for some time that there's a pretty strong majority in the country 
for these issues, but they are distracted or remain resentful around cultural issues. Um, I think in the sort of Thomas Frank version of this and what's the matter with Kansas, it was things like abortion and, 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 and religious issues. In sort of some of the more modern forms of it, it is identity politics and Black Lives Matter and white privilege and that kind of discourse. And um, and I think in, in all the forms of it, there's an idea that, you know, what people would want is something much more left at any rate. And um, so it's like a mixture of Democrats being too modest or moderate. Um, and on the other hand, these sort of other distractions. Do you buy the idea of this kind of lurking left majority or do you think it's a persuasion project? I think there's a majority that is open to the kind of programs and policies the left is proposing. Whether or not they would ever self-conceptualize as left or as supporting a left project, I think is up for a huge amount of debate. I think the important thing is you don't have to identify as a leftist or join a left movement or see yourself completely reconceptualized as a left person to see that some of the things that the left happens to be proposing right now would be good things to have. So in that version, then, why aren't they there now? I mean, they often are, I think, when you get a, you know, like a ballot initiative to raise the minimum wage. Yeah. But what is, uh, I, I guess another way of asking the question is that I think there's always this issue of what stands between people's views and political mobilization. Yeah, and I think that identity is a big part of it. Um, and identity that's interesting. Uh, identity can range from, you know, your sort of racial regional identity. I'm a white person from the South and I just don't mobilize for Democrats, you know, uh-huh. at this point. Or I'm a white person in the Midwest. I just don't mobilize for free trade, uh, pro-globalization politicians. Right. And so I think that, um, you know, with a lot of these elections, you know, especially the bigger the election, um, the more local, the smaller, like you're saying, with ballot initiatives um, and, and local politics, I think it's much easier to isolate just the issue. But the bigger the elections get and the more prominent and public the debates become, I think the more they take on an, a, a countenance of uh, this issue is, in fact, symbolic of a worldview and way of life and comprehensive project related to this kind of person, a globalist, um, free trading person. And this issue is related to, you know, a nationalist, anti-free trade person. And that's just to kind of focus on the Midwest manufacturing experience. And so I think that in those situations, identity can pose a real roadblock to mobilization. I think it's a really good way of putting that. And, and and something I appreciate about appreciate about it is a frustration of mine is that it feels identity really does feel to me to be one of the fundamental forces of politics, like gravity. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we have this very limited way of talking about it and we only recognize certain identities. We recognize racial identities and gendered identities. I think we to some degree even have trouble recognizing political identities because we believe them to be chosen and thus changeable. But it's not only that we have all those, but as you say, like we have identities about being a machinist or, you know, being a nurse or being somebody who is in the South or being somebody whose parent was a certain kind of way. And those identities, when I when I say that ideology is sticky, I often think it's much more because identity is sticky, that kind of identity is upstream usually from ideology. And the reason you can't change people's minds uh, about ideas oftentimes is that to change people's minds about ideas means to change their minds about themselves and the group they belong to. And there are very good reasons we make it hard for others to do that to us. Yeah. And I think that so, you know, if you are going to 
make a play to have someone who, you know, doesn't identify as someone who's a member of the left or a left coalition, if you're going to make a play for their support, you know, and you, you know, with respect to their identity, I, I think that, you know, one of the arguments that I've seen emerging on the left, especially with lots of um, sort of activist groups, DSA chapters, and so on and so forth that have opened up across the country, not just on the east and western seaboards, but in the south and midwest, they always say, look, there is a tradition here that you can be a part of that doesn't require you dispensing with your identity. So if you are a worker in the midwest, there is a tradition here of workers in the midwest advocating for uh, strong labor protections and and uh, FDR-style social welfare policies. And it's the same thing with sort of these groups in the South. There's a tradition here of real, you know, dyed-in-the-wool, deep-roots Southerners advocating for these kinds of policies that help all of us, that draw us together and pit us against, you know, especially elite billionaires. Um, and so I think that that has been uh, sort of an evolution I've seen in the way that the left is kind of pitching its projects is to say, look, you don't have to totally throw away an identity that's important to you because that identity maybe isn't as um, purely directed in one political direction as you might think. Let me, I want to cover one more beat with you, and it's a, a deep dive into the Liz Brunig crates. <laughs> but a couple of years ago, back on the back on the Liz Brunig blog, uh, you wrote a, a pretty interesting, I thought, series of pieces on the role civility plays in politics and the ways in which it is... Um, you know, used and 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 wielded against certain kinds of ideas, and it, it's a series that's always stuck in my mind. So I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about that and about the ways in which you think civility may not be what it uh, what it purports to be. I think that this uh, series emanated from sort of discussions that were happening mainly on social media about members of the left who are perceived to be uh, uncivil, and um, I don't think I usually am perceived that way. Um, but my husband uh, has a bit of a, a, a spicy streak um, on social media. And, and so, you know, I've thought about these critiques for a while. You know, the first thing I would say about civility uh, is I think that um, there are sort of two sides to it. So I think the one side of civility is just um, a sort of strategic and pragmatic side. And that says, if you want people to listen to you, you're going to have to be respectful and decent to them. And that is the argument that's made in sort of favor of pragmatic civility, that you catch more flies with honey than you do vinegar. And then there is a more sort of, you can call it sort of Kantian or, you know, duty-based side, which says, if you're going to participate in liberal democracy, we all have to use a language that is um, acceptable to all of us, a sort of reciprocal language that we can all agree on. And that language doesn't involve sort of name-calling, insults, um, personal uh, degradation, character assassination, and so forth, because those things are not conducive to the sort of promotion of a free and equal society where everyone is an equal uh, political participant. And I think that, you know, sort of taken together, there are sort of several problems with both the pragmatic argument and the sort of Kantian argument in favor of civility. Um, I think that, for one, you definitely can't prove people do listen to you uh, at times when you're working outside of the typical kind of uh, respectable and kind interaction. And those would be sort of protests, rallies, um, you know, very um, strong and boldly stated um, slogans and arguments that have been successful in American politics. 
Um, I think that, and, and, you know, Trump is a great example of that right now. I don't think you actually do have to um, be decent and respectable um, to gain a real power. Um, and then, you know, as so as insofar as the duty-based thing goes, I think that expecting a certain kind of language to a point um, or after a point, I should say, um, starts to limit the kinds of people who can participate in public discourse. People who, you know, didn't grow up middle class, sort of speaking the language of, you know, HR coded workplaces, um, uh, people who are, you know, not uh, white and don't have the sort of experience dealing with sort of white professional class people and so forth. I think they all get coded rather easily as either lazy, sloppy, unprofessional, um, ridiculous, non-serious, or uncivil, um, uh, un unsuited to civil conversation. You see some of these critiques being leveled at AOC, right? You know, people saying, you know, be serious, straighten up, this is ridiculous, you're, you're being disrespectful in some way uh, by being sort of cavalier. And so, so those, I think, are my general critiques of the civility expectation. I also don't think those are the only reasons you might generally be um, sort of calm and understanding in conversation. No, I, I think all that is is very well taken. The, the part of it that I think a lot about is actually that first part, less of the Kantian um, obligation to be civil and more the question of, you know, is civility the, the the best way to be listened to? And I think in some ways Donald Trump is a very good um, uh, example here because he both strikes me as an example of the upsides of incivility and the downsides of it, which is I think that you often need a certain amount of incivility and in speaking outside the norms to get attention to something people don't want to give attention to. I think that it, it can be – I'm not 100 percent sure this is correct because certainly there are examples of people getting new ideas into the discourse and, and also protest movements that are very built around certainly a kind of formalized civility, um, getting – you know, forcing attention to new things um, that, that, that wouldn't otherwise be, be given them. Um, but I, I do think in general there is really something to confrontation. And I think that the merits of confrontation are underestimated by the people who often get confronted. Uh, and so Donald Trump, who is trying to do something different in the Republican Party, would have never gotten the kind of media amplification that he did if he had been civil, um, if he had just been normal, if he had just come and made some, you know, genteel arguments about immigration and wages or immigration even in crime. Um, you know, he really had to, you know, it was it was to his benefit that, that he went to war. But it also, I think you know, did and continues to limit his persuasive ability that, you know, as much as I don't totally believe in persuasion, I think that, you know, Donald Trump could be a president at 57 percent approval um, if he was able to talk to people who didn't agree with him. And I, I think a lot about that line, you know, how do you recognize both like the, the, the powers and the limits of certain modes of discourse without just losing yourself in one side or the other and, or in motivated reasoning about one side or the other, right? Like I will sometimes absorb critiques. I'm like, oh, like that's a shitty thing to say to me. That's not how I view myself or not what I think I'm doing or I don't think it's unfair. And, you know, there's also like some work to be like, but no, you still like, you don't you don't get to, to not listen to it for that reason. But on the other hand, then when I'm doing the critiquing, I often sort of oscillate between this idea that, I should be writing something that the maximum number of people should be able to read without thinking that I am outside the boundaries of people they can listen to. Like, I want to lower the emotional cost of hearing what I have to say, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, so, I mean, again, I think that the response of a lot of people who are annoyed by the civility critique, I, I think they would respond in a couple of ways. 
One would be uh, persuasion, in you know, at least in terms of sort of argumentation is not super successful, which, you know, we talked about earlier. Um, and then secondly, I think their argument would be charges of incivility are unfairly assigned. Um, and so, you know, my husband sort of gave the example of anyone can say, or, or at least it is considered an acceptable thing to say, um, that poor mothers should get off welfare and go to work, right? We have uh, quite a bit of literature from welfare reform in the 90s with politicians and also think tank people saying exactly that saying, you know, poor people need to stop taking money from the state and need to get jobs and take care of themselves. And, you know, that's an argument that fits within the bounds of civility, or it was. I think the fact that some people might wince at hearing that now suggests that there have been shifts uh, in how we think about those kinds of things. But that only proves the point that, you know, what is considered civil uh, is is essentially a matter of power on some level. If powerful people are willing to tolerate the argument, then it's considered a civil argument. But when you actually start taking it apart and looking at it, there are built-in assumptions there that are incredibly cruel, right? A lot of these people are already working, right? They're doing labor in the home or they're caring for children or sick family members. Um, there's an effort to work. There's no intention to leech off the government. The presumption there is that uh, poor people are owed nothing by the state, while wealthy people are able to uh, capitalize off of uh, tax loopholes, deductions, and so forth. Welfare for the wealthy, as Christopher Farisi calls it. So there's just a load of really demeaning and cruel assumptions that are built in there, but it's still considered civil, essentially because powerful people are willing to tolerate it. And so I think critics of civility say, look, I, I'm not going to only say the kinds of things that powerful people are willing to tolerate. Powerful people will always consider arguments against them in some sense uncivil, right? Howard Schultz said in an interview that um, billionaires should be called people of means or people of wealth. It's amazing. Right? <laughs> so, so there was some effort there, some implication on his part that it's mean or uncivil to call billionaires billionaires, you know, and that's an effort by somebody uh, with a certain amount of power to kind of um, lodge that critique. And so I think that's another argument against civility um, that people make. And, and then I would add on to that, that that doesn't mean that you're obligated to be full time as hardcore as you can be. I don't think that's necessarily very helpful either, as you pointed out. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, it's funny because I, I actually like that example you give a lot. I mean, to me, there's a real issue of boundaries on the debate. And you can it, it seems to me you could set boundaries civilly or uncivilly. But this idea of like what is acceptable to say, I think of some of the things that, uh, you know, have been said, like at some point, you know, Hillary Clinton saying, you know, what was I supposed to do? Stay home and bake cookies. And I vaguely remember there was something with Aunt Romney and Hillary Rosen that had a similar flavor um, at the time uh, in, in the 2012 election. And both of those were examples of things that were said civilly, but because they offended an unbelievably powerful group, were taken as being beyond the pale in a way that uh, nothing in the actual rhetoric or in the structure of the discussion would have, I think, signaled. And so like that idea about the way kind of boundaries are imposed unequally and boundaries are set by power. I had Adam Serwer on, uh, on the podcast while back. And, you know, he he said, uh, I, I may, I'm paraphrasing him, so I may get a little bit wrong, but he said something like, offensiveness is defined by power. Um, it's not defined by actual offensiveness. And I think that's very deeply right. I think on the civility thing, I think I'm like reasonably convinced by this critique. I find myself often in debates with sort of people on the more IDW right, you know, making this point that I think their model of the world doesn't have any space for protest. Um, you know, that, that this view that everything is just a rational argument is actually not how human um, relations have progressed. 
But the the other thing that I think sometimes I look at Twitter um, or I look at Facebook and I see I don't want to become the old guy complaining that, that nobody's <laughs> nice anymore. But but the thing that I, I, I often see is I don't think people are actually trying to engage with each other. I think they're trying to like engage to their own people. And that those two things can conflate in a way that, that that seems problematic. Like civility often seems to me to be how people talk when they expect to be heard by the person they're communicating with. Um, not always, but obviously protests are an example of the the opposite. But there's this whole thing where it's like people are nicer on podcasts than they are on the internet, um, which I think has something to do with that. And I I don't know. I, I'm just in an unsettled place with it. I've always thought the the piece you wrote some years back was one of the more um, rigorous looks at it. Like I, I, I sort of agree that it's used for boundary setting. And I also worry that uh, people are just sort of giving up on having <laughs> conversations with each other and that just it, it's going to have some bad downstream impacts. Do you think that I'm nice on the internet? I do in general. Um, <laughs> no, I shouldn't say in general. I've like, yeah. I, I do think you are. And actually, one thing I want to say is I was not, um, I did not bring this up to have you defend. Um, oh, no, no, Matt, no, 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 had no, his uncivil- But I think there's a much broader thing about this. Um, I, yeah. And I always wonder about how to how to engage with it. Yeah. I mean, so my, my viewpoint has always been um, that, you know, the reason that I, you know, I try to sort of take it easy. Well, there are a couple of things I try to do. For one, I'll talk to anybody who wants to talk to me. Anybody who wants to have a sort of reasonable and rational discussion, I will sit down with. Um, And I think that that's important to me. I don't even know if it's totally persuasive. I know that um, to the degree that persuasion is possible, I'm thinking about the audience. Um, So, you know, I debated at LibertyCon against uh, Brian Kaplan, who's a libertarian professor. I debated at Acton Institute, which is a sort of libertarian Catholic institute. I've done AEI stuff. And this is all, you know, in the context of debates and arguments. I went on Laura Ingram um, and debated with her. And so, you know, my viewpoint has always been, you know, I'm willing to sit down with anyone who honestly wants to talk. Um, And I understand that is in some ways a kind of of rare thing. Um, And I think one reason it's a rare habit is because a lot of people feel like no one really wants to talk. People are all performing for their own cohort as you said, or people just want to bring you on and own a lib. You know, they they just want to perform and stir up their cohort and gin up energy for their viewpoint, and they don't actually want to debate. And so I think that's, um, and I think that, you know, what you're observing is true, and therefore that there is some truth to that, that it increasingly seems like um, there's not a lot of interest in debate. And it might be because there is a vast recognition triggered by uh, the ease of communication online that persuasion maybe isn't as possible as we thought it was before we could test opinion quickly on demand. Uh, and so I think people might be pulling away, you know, pulling away from sort of honest debate and pulling more towards sort of performative styles of debate that, you know, point score for their audiences because they don't see any purpose in, in attempting real persuasion anymore. I still give it a shot. Um, And I think that there are reasons to be easygoing and kind with people that have to do with human dignity and not with the sort of political parameters of civility. And that's what I try to keep in mind. I do my best. It goes sideways from time to time. (laughs) Well, I think I think it does for all of us um, in very much including myself. And one of the things I, I do think about this and one of the reasons this debate always sticks in my head is that I I'm somebody who's a critic of the incivility of Twitter. I I don't love the term incivility. I'm a critic of how Twitter encourages us to act to each other. I actually don't always think civility is the issue. I think it has a lot more to do with who you think you're writing for and the incentives of how you're writing. 
But one thing that I do believe is that I think there's been both positive and negative, but I think I kind of take the view that in the long run, it's going to be positive effects of having a lot of people saying pretty clearly and oftentimes pretty angrily how things that have been suppressed in the culture make them feel. And I think there's been a lot of positives out of the confrontations of the past, um, you know, I mean, history generally, but but even just in the past couple of years. And I do, you know, one of the things that, um, one of the reasons I brought this up and wanted to have this conversation with you is that I actually have like really come to believe the idea that civility can just be a tool for imposing sort of status quo frameworks. Um, and I feel like that lurks in a lot of conversations here. And I don't know, like there, there seems to me to be something of a balance here that we're probably not doing a great job as a culture striking. But I, I guess the point is that I wanted to air some of the uh, some of the argument for the benefits of incivility, because I don't think that's a perspective I put on the show all that often. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, there are definitely benefits and there are definitely reasons to suspend automatic penalties for being uncivil, even if you yourself are, you know, just kind of dispositionally easygoing or you don't like conflict. I definitely fall into both categories. Um, there are reasons not to automatically penalize incivility. And I think that that may be even, you know, an even greater, you know, point for people to take away. Uh, well, look, I appreciate you being here to have to have this very civil conversation. I know we're about at uh, at the at the time limit, but I wanted to ask you for um, we always on the show ask for three books that have influenced you that you'd recommend to the audience. Uh, what you got? Yeah, so I have uh, Confessions of Saint Augustine. Um, you know, I know it's old. It, it's uh, it's from uh, a couple millennia ago, but you'll like it. You'll like it. I promise you'll like it, especially uh, young people. I read it when I was in college. I, I read it about every year now. I still really like it. Uh, Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky, um, I think is still a really great book. I read for the first time in high school. And every time I read it, I come away with a totally different perspective on it, um, which I think is is an interesting uh, capacity for a book to have. And then uh, for the um, not autobiographical and nonfiction uh, entry, uh, The Malaise of Modernity by Charles Taylor is this collection of lectures on uh, why things feel as bad as they do in modernity and what parts of it are good and worth salvaging. I like that a lot. Um, I have not had a good Charles Taylor lecture book recommended on the show before, so I'm glad we finally finally put that into the show notes. Um, Liz Brunig, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you to Elizabeth Brunig for being here, to all of you for being here, to Topher Ruth at UC Berkeley, Jeff Geld in DC, Jillian Weinberger, my producer. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back in a couple of days. 